It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the immense popularity of this kingpin, the story we tell today is full of events and encounters that may have been greatly exaggerated or fabricated over the almost hundred years since his reign. We have taken care to note whenever the rumor and fact become hard to discern from each other. Joseph Hopto Junta slurped down the last of his linguine greedily. This might be the best meal he ever had. Beside him, his associates, John Scalisi and Albert Anselmi, looked similarly satisfied. Their plates were clean of everything but a few streaks of marinara sauce. Across from them was the man who'd served them this feast, Snorky Capone himself. Dressed in a spotless yellow suit, he watched the men contentedly, sitting back in his chair. Joseph felt a flicker of pity that a man of such exquisite taste would have to die. But he did not know his place. His arrogance had turned Chicago into a war zone. Capone may think himself the most powerful man in this town, but Joseph was the head of the Unione Siciliana. His legacy would outlive Capone's, Scalisi and Anselmi had killed so many for Capone, it would be fitting for them to do the deed. Capone stood and thanked the gentleman for dining with him. Joseph returned the gratitude before noticing something in Capone's eyes, a certain coldness. The doors to the dining room flew open and a half dozen broad-shouldered men filed in. Some carried rope in their hands, and some, Joseph had to look over his shoulder to be sure, held baseball bats. The man nearest to Scalisi struck him in the head, sending his face into his plate. Before Hoptoad could sit up, a hickory bat collided with the side of his head, knocking him to the floor. He didn't even see them get in Selmy. As the gentleman carried the dazed Joseph out of the room, the scarred face of Al Capone filled his vision. He had known about their plan. Someone had talked. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard. This is Kingpins, a ParCast original. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power changed them and how it changed the community around them. Today, we're beginning our story on Al Capone, the Prohibition-era gangster who held Chicago under his thumb from the 1920s through the early 30s. He was the Chicago Crime Commission's public enemy number one, controlling rum running, gambling, and sex work across the entire city of Chicago, and sanctioning a number of ruthless killings, none of which the law could ever connect to him. 
This week, we'll explore how the middle child of a poor immigrant family helped build and run the most infamous organized crime syndicate the United States had ever seen. And next week, we'll explore the unconventional way various government agents brought him to justice. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Now, let's begin the story of Chicago's most famous gangster, Al Capone. Chicago in the mid-1920s was the home of a number of powerful and larger-than-life gangsters. Big Jim Colosimo, Bugs Moran, Johnny Torrio, But Al Capone was something new. He was a star. While his older brother James had run away from home to act in cowboy films, Capone was the one who wound up becoming a celebrity. His meteoric rise to power made him a household name in under a decade without ever having to pull a trigger. In late 1925, at the ripe age of 26, this first-generation Italian-American became the sole head of the largest criminal empire in the country. The Chicago outfit, which he co-founded with Johnny Torrio, was a money-making machine, turning an estimated profit of $105 million a year through bootlegging, running brothels, gambling, and racketeering. Capone himself claimed that the outfit had a weekly payroll of $300,000, or just over $4 million today. Part of the genius of the Chicago outfit was how labyrinthine the hierarchy was, meaning that even over 80 years later, historians do not know the full extent of its dealings. But Al Capone didn't just want to be rich or influential. He wanted to be loved. While most of his contemporaries were content lying low and making money quietly with liquor, brothels, and narcotics, Capone made sure the public knew his name. Whenever he went to restaurants, he tipped generously, and often he'd give staggering gratuities to paperboys or shoeshiners. Everyone wanted to be on his good side. In January of 1927, reporters from newspapers all over Chicago were invited to a unique sort of press conference at Al Capone's home. This was highly irregular and caused a good amount of buzz. Capone wasn't an elected official. Why did he want to talk to the press? When the wary journalists arrived, they were shocked when Scarface Al greeted them at the doorway in slippers and a pink apron, waving a wooden spoon tipped with tomato sauce, the very picture of an Italian man at ease. He invited them inside and served them all a feast of spaghetti made by his mother, Teresa. As the reporters ate and drank the red wine he provided, Capone told them how much he despised the gang violence that had overtaken the city of Chicago. He was an honest family man, after all, and he deplored violence of any kind. 
for a good while after, the claim that Al Capone was a friendly man who couldn't stand violence would find its way into a number of stories about the Chicago gangland slayings of the time. Al Capone's facility with the media was legendary. At the height of his popularity, it was said that Capone could have run for mayor of Chicago and won. He presented himself as a Robin Hood-like figure, a hero to the common man, who had achieved his own version of the American dream. He may have been involved in the illegal liquor market, but he was an honest businessman, just satisfying a public demand. This idealized version of Al Capone was an elaborately maintained facade. On top of bootleggers, smugglers, and muscle, Capone had a number of newspaper men on his payroll. This ensured there was a steady stream of complimentary coverage of his activities to balance out the numerous gangland slayings more critical journalists suspected he had a hand in. Like the precise profits of his businesses, telling where the real Al Capone ends and the mythical Al Capone begins is a matter of intense debate even to this day. To men who met him in person, Al was a charming family man who was undeniably generous. And yet it was hard to square this genial persona with the dozens of lifeless bodies headlining national newspapers of the time. Capone's connection to organized crime was an open secret, despite the tight hold he kept on his own public image. And sometimes, every once in a while, he would let the jovial facade slip, revealing a fiery temper. If addressed in a certain way, Al Capone was known to fly into a tremendous rage. For instance, he hated the nickname that had haunted him since he was a teenager, Scarface. And he hated anyone calling him Italian. Whenever he heard himself described as such, Capone would respond with barely contained contempt. I'm no Italian. I was born in Brooklyn. This refusal to identify as Italian, despite his exclusive association with Italian and Italian-American gangsters, only really makes sense if you knew just how hard a young Al Capone fought to free himself from his immigrant upbringing in New York City. Gabrielle and Teresa Capone moved to America from Italy at the turn of the century, bringing their three sons with them. Instead of settling in New York's most populous Italian neighborhood in the Lower East Side, the Capones settled in Brooklyn. Alphonse Gabriel Capone was born on January 17, 1899, the first Capone child born in the New World. The Capone family lived on Park Avenue, a street popular among all sorts of immigrants. Their apartment was nestled near the very edge of the Italian part of the street, neighbored by a variety of Eastern European, German, and Irish families. The fourth of nine children, Al was, in a sense, the ultimate middle child. His oldest brother, James, ran away from home in 1905, when Al was just six years old. Though they suspected he was going out west to pursue acting in Hollywood, his family would not learn what became of him until decades later. Of his siblings, Al was especially close with his older brothers, Ralph and Frank, both of whom he idolized for drastically different reasons. In a way, Al was the perfect balance between Ralph and Frank. 
the second eldest, Ralph was the first to drop out of school and take up with the local street gangs. He was a brutish boy who loved fighting and wasn't terribly interested in learning. Frank, on the other hand, was smart and charismatic, preferring to use his intelligence as a weapon rather than his fists. Al possessed both Ralph's muscle and Frank's brains. He would participate in brawls with the neighboring Irish boys regularly, earning a reputation as a talented fighter. But despite leaving school frequently for these sorts of scuffles, Capone still managed the equivalent of B grades in English and mathematics, demonstrating his mental acuity and capacity for learning. Even so, Al still dropped out of school in sixth grade, following in his older brother's footsteps. Al was frustrated by the way immigrant kids were treated by schools in poor communities and saw life on the streets as a quicker route to success. Al himself would later say that he learned more on the street than he ever would in a classroom. Despite his delinquent behavior, his family was determined that young Al lead a respectable life. Gabrielle Capone ran a barber shop in Brooklyn, but cutting the hair of poor immigrants was hardly enough to keep nine children fed. To help support his family, the 15-year-old Al joined Ralph working at a printing plant as a box cutter in 1914. Unfortunately, just a year later, Ralph left for Manhattan to get married. Now, one of only two breadwinners in his home of nine, Al's paycheck of $3 a week would go straight to his mother and siblings. But Al's respectable job was not completely keeping him out of trouble. During his time off, Al would frequently join gangs of boys at the docks, picking fights or jeering at recently disembarked sailors on their way to nearby brothels. The largest of these gangs was called the Boys of Navy Street, who chose Capone as a sort of mascot for his enthusiasm and intimidating physique. Worried that his association with gangs would get his son into trouble, Gabrielle Capone gave young Al a shoe-shining kit and told him to set up on Columbia Street, a very popular place for businessmen walking to and from work. Gabriel's innocent attempt to keep his son in an honest profession backfired dramatically. Among the businessmen of Columbia Street were scores of less savory individuals, specifically minions of the local gang boss, Don Batista Balsamo. Instead of learning an honest trade like his father hoped, Al observed how lower-level mob enforcers operated. He saw them offer protection to businessmen, i.e. payment for not getting beaten up. Ditching the idea of shining shoes for a living, Al, well-muscled and tall for a 15-year-old, started offering his fellow shoe shiners the same kind of protection. He was joined by other less ambitious boys who just wanted to make a quick buck. This new gang, dubbed the South Brooklyn Rippers, would not last long. When Don Balsamo found out, he had them unceremoniously booted off the street. But Al had a taste for power now. His ability to manipulate the older boys into being his lackeys had filled him with a renewed ambition to be more than just an Italian kid in Brooklyn. He was going to find work in Manhattan. Up next, Al meets the men who would teach him how to become a professional criminal. 
This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Whenever he left his family home to go to work at the printing plant, Al Capone found himself walking past a club owned by Johnny Torrio. 17 years Capone's senior, Torrio was an up-and-coming figure in the Manhattan crime world, whose cunning had earned him the nickname, The Fox. Torrio's agents picked out this tall Italian boy as potential muscle and introduced him to the boss sometime around 1915. Torrio was 33, Al was 16. Al was hired as an errand boy because Torrio's agents were impressed by his size and clear aptitude for fighting. But the fox immediately noticed Capone's natural intelligence and talent for numbers. Capone was quickly given greater responsibility than other young men hired by Torrio to test his skills. He was brought into the office where Torrio directed him to help his accountants tally each day's haul. Al made sure to never let his new boss down. Al was a keen student of Torrio's business strategy, studying him closely whenever he was needed to be an intimidating body in the room. Torrio was like an evolved version of Al's brother Frank, a fastidious and intelligent man who used his charm and brains to convince others to do his dirty work. Torrio made Al aware of his shadier business dealings very early on in their working relationship. Al learned about all the extortion rackets and brothels Torrio held, and noted how he never dealt with any of them directly. These observations would strongly inform how Al ran his own business. But Torrio was not Al's only mentor figure. Around the same time, he grew aware of Frankie Yale, a business associate of Torrio's who ran an ironically named establishment called the Harvard Inn. Where Torrio was refined and subtle, Yale was violent and showy, but undeniably effective at instilling fear in his associates. Al would wind up working for Yale as a busboy during Torrio's many business trips to Chicago. One thing Capone admired about his new boss was his sense of style. The flashy suits Frankie Yale preferred were more to Al's liking than Torrio's more muted fashion choices. He observed how Yale's flair made him stand out at his club, as if his very outfit was announcing, this man is important. A hot-blooded boy of 17, Capone had become a frequent womanizer. He would often patronize Torrio's dance halls and brothels with his brother Ralph, who moved back to Brooklyn after his first marriage fell apart. Around this time, both of them contracted sexually transmitted diseases. Ralph caught gonorrhea, and soon after, Al got syphilis, though he would not be diagnosed until years later. Ralph's disease went away. Al was not so lucky. He never sought treatment preferring to enjoy the pleasures of youth without considering the eventual consequences of his actions. This penchant for the pleasures of the flesh 
would have more immediately harmful effects than diseases. In 1917, while working behind the bar at the Harvard Club, a young woman caught his eye. Her name was Lena Galluccio. Now an overconfident lad of 18 years old, Al approached her and began to flirt in his own way, crudely complimenting her figure. She rebuffed his advances. Moments later, a man approached Al, seemingly out of nowhere. He was a shorter Italian man and visibly drunk. He introduced himself as Frank and accused Al of insulting his sister. Before Al could react, Frank Galluccio punched him. He reeled, and as he was gaining his balance, Frank broke a bottle against the bar and struck Al with the jagged edges. Al was left with three diagonal scars on the bottom left side of his face and neck. The embarrassed Al Capone would never tell this story to anyone, claiming that the scars were an old war wound, despite never fighting in a war. The tales about what happened became the stuff of legend. Some claimed Galluccio smashed him over the head with a chair before slashing him three times. Others claimed it was a single strike from a broken bottle. No matter what weapon caused it, this injury would lead to Capone's most infamous nickname, which he hated, Scarface. The bouncers soon broke up the fight. Frankie Yale made Al and Frank apologize to each other. Al wanted revenge, but Yale forbade it. Frank Galluccio was a trusted enforcer for Yale and thus above Al's reach. Despite this humiliation, Al Capone's status in the Brooklyn underworld was on the rise. His paychecks from his various jobs were helping his family, and he soon set his sights on a woman who made him forget all about Lena Galluccio, an Irish girl named May Coughlin. Their relationship was something of an anomaly at the time. May's upbringing was as traditionally Irish as Al's was traditionally Italian, and both families were shocked when May gave birth to Al's son on December 4, 1918. And yet they would marry 26 days later at St. Mary Star of the Sea. Despite mutual dislike from their respective parents, they stayed married and May's mother even allowed Al to move in with her family. Capone's career would really kick off in 1919. He started working for Torrio full-time, going out every night to collect money from Torrio's various gambling halls, brothels, and clubs. In what would become a pattern throughout their married life, May stayed home and took care of their son. Albert, Sonny Capone, was a sickly child. Al had passed his syphilis to May, and in turn, she had passed it on to their son. Sometime in 1919, Al Capone received an offer from Johnny Torrio. Torrio had been traveling a lot lately, managing interests in both Brooklyn and Chicago. Now Torrio had a golden business opportunity, thanks to Big Jim Colosimo, the man known as Diamond Jim. Jim Colosimo was among the most influential crime bosses in Chicago. His network of brothels, gambling halls, and clubs ran throughout the city, and he had just made Johnny Torrio his right-hand man. Together, they had expanded Colosimo's influence and secured it against rival gangs. But now, with prohibition looming on the horizon, Torrio wanted the 20-year-old Capone to join them. 
Capone didn't hesitate. Promising May he'd bring them over soon, Capone left his wife and child behind in the early 1920s and struck out west to join his mentor in Chicago. There, Torrio set him up as a bouncer at a club known as the Ford Deuces at 2222 South Wabash Avenue. The Ford Deuces was part saloon, part dance hall, and part brothel. Capone loved drinking, dancing, and women. As one of the primary men tasked with the safety of the sex workers, he was rumored to frequently sample the wares. Al was exactly what Torrio needed in Chicago, a man whose intellect matched his own, but who wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty when needed. But in his position as part enforcer, part management, Al Capone's name would not be put on any official documents. His official business cards read, Al Brown, secondhand furniture dealer. Beyond Al's usual talents, Torrio needed one more thing from him, a confidant. Colosimo and Torrio had started to drift apart, and he needed a right-hand man he could trust not to betray him to the boss. The rift between Torrio and Colosimo began in January of 1920, when Congress passed the Volstead Act, prohibiting the sale and distribution of alcohol within the United States. Many criminals of the time, including the rival Northside Gang, saw this as an opportunity to fill a need that legitimate businesses were no longer providing. Torrio, always thinking several steps ahead, attempted to persuade Jim Colosimo to get into the bootlegging game. But Big Jim thought it was too risky. He was growing comfortable with his hold on the Chicago underworld, so comfortable that he didn't see the need to take any risks he didn't have to. Torrio was furious at Colosimo's short-sightedness. If Colosimo couldn't adapt with the times, they would have to get him out of the way. Torrio confided his plan to Capone, who readily agreed to assist. They reached out to Capone's old boss, Frankie Yale, with an offer. They would bring him to Chicago for a job highly suited to his talents. On May 11, 1920, Big Jim received a phone call from Torrio. He needed a shipment of supplies for one of their clubs, and Big Jim was the only one who could give the sign-off. Though it was supposed to be his day off, Jim grudgingly went into his office to sign the paperwork. Fifteen minutes later, he stepped out of his office and out the door of the Four Deuces. He didn't notice the gunman lurking near his car. A pair of gunshots struck Colosimo in the back of the head, and he collapsed on the pavement, dead on the spot. The shooter was long gone before the body was discovered. The murder made national news. The New York Times headline on May 12, 1920 read, James Colosimo slain at restaurant door. Chicago underworld character is shot dead by an unknown person. The man who had ruled the Chicago underworld for almost two decades was no more. But the infrastructure he set up remained intact. As Colosimo's number two, Torrio was in the perfect place to fill the power vacuum. Colosimo's death opened up brand new opportunities in Al Capone's eyes. Soon, he brought his whole family, wife, child, mother, and siblings 
to Chicago. He bought a two-family house at 7244 South Prairie Avenue, and the entire Capone clan moved in. His brothers, Frank and Ralph, were put on Torrio's payroll as a strategist and enforcer, respectively. Al knew their skills, so he knew exactly how the outfit could use them. The South Prairie Avenue house was more than just a home. It was a fortress. Capone made sure to install iron bars on the windows and reinforce the garage with steel plating. Capone was not famous yet, but with the rising prominence of Johnny Torrio, he knew his days in the shadows were numbered. His prominent place beside Torrio attracted its own amount of attention, especially since Capone was the more physically imposing of the duo. Around this time, he had acquired a new nickname, which he vastly preferred to Scarface. They called him Snorky Capone. Snorky was 20's slang for good dresser. Once he made the leap from bouncer to businessman, Al had adopted the bold suited fashion of Frankie Yale, often dressing in green or yellow. He would even start to use face powder to conceal the scars on his left cheek. His most famous accessory, however, was always his off-white fedora. As Capone impressed his newly arrived family with his newfound sense of style, Torrio took over all of Colosimo's business interests seamlessly. While there was little doubt in the underworld who had ordered the murder of Big Jim, the men who worked below him would soon be sated by the influx of bootlegging money their new bosses provided. Under the leadership of Torrio and Capone, this Italian-American criminal enterprise would become known as the Chicago Outfit. It became among the strongest criminal organizations in Chicago, alongside the Irish Northside Gang and the Jenna Brothers, who represented the Sicilian Mafia. Both Capone and Torrio knew that their work was only beginning. The late Jim Colosimo had been right about one thing. Bootlegging was dangerous business. They would face competition from other criminals as well as the law. Killing Big Jim Colosimo, as dramatic as it was, would be the simplest task in securing hold of Chicago. Up next, Al Capone and Johnny Torrio pay the price for overstepping their bounds. Now, back to the story. From 1921 to 1923, the three major gangs in Chicago, the Northside Gang, the Jenna Brothers, and the newly christened Chicago Outfit, were in a steady standoff around the liquor trade. At this point, it was only a business rivalry. Though all of the involved parties had blood on their hands, none took any actions against each other just yet. Due to their shared Italian heritage, there was no desire for competition between the Jenna brothers and the Chicago outfit. However, the Northside gang under Dean O'Banion was another issue entirely. Where Torrio differed from O'Banion was in his strategy. Torrio was focused on expansion over all else. He already had enough brothels, gambling halls, and distilleries in Chicago, so he began opening operations in neighboring towns and suburbs. Torrio rarely stayed in one place for very long, often taking trips out of town with his wife, Anne. These vacations served two functions, 
keeping the stress of running the Chicago outfit from affecting their marriage, and keeping Torrio out of range of his rival's hitmen, should the rivalry between the gangs ever erupt into violence. Now in charge of the outfit's day-to-day -day operations, Al Capone relocated his base of operations to the Hawthorne Hotel in the suburb of Cicero. It was during his time in Cicero that Capone started to receive personal attention from the papers. Reporter Robert St. John founded a modest paper called the Cicero Tribune, in part to ensure that there was at least one local paper immune to bribery from Capone's lackeys. One day in 1924, St. John ran into Ralph Capone while walking home from work. He didn't even try to run. Instead, he crouched into a ball and waited for the inevitable beating. Ralph Capone hit him repeatedly, using one of the Chicago outfit's favorite weapons, a bar of soap in a sock. By the time they left, the reporter was suffering from severe bruises and some broken bones. He was admitted to a nearby hospital. After his recovery, when Robert St. John attempted to pay his medical bills, the hospital turned his money down. He was told they had already been paid. By a generous man in a white fedora with three scars on his face. One of the main reasons Capone received so much attention in Cicero was his blatant interfering with their local politics. The Capone organization promoted a whole slate of local and state candidates for the upcoming primary election of April 1st, 1924. Capone put his brother Frank on the task of bending public opinion toward their candidates in the Republican Party. To combat the negative press from the Cicero Tribune, the Capones founded their own paper, the Cicero Life, which became Capone's mouthpiece throughout the campaign. The day of the election was one of ruthless and flagrant corruption. Capone's henchmen, led by Frank, stood watch at the ballot boxes, inspecting every ballot before it was deposited. Many Democratic poll workers were intimidated or beaten to prevent them from doing their jobs. During the day, word of this shameless manipulation made its way to the Chicago mayor, who dispatched a host of around 70 policemen to restore a fair election. These were not uniformed police, but plain-clothes cops driving unmarked black sedans. Frank Capone was crossing the street when he saw this convoy of black cars rolling down the street towards him. The normally cool-headed Capone brother was alarmed by this. These were the same cars Al's henchmen used, but all of theirs were already employed at the ballot boxes around the county. Possibly fearing encroachment from another gang, Frank reached for his revolver. The cars screeched to a halt in front of him. Seeing his sudden movement, policemen leapt out of their cars and opened fire. Frank Capone couldn't even touch his pistol before a hail of bullets ripped through his clothing. He was dead before he hit the pavement. When Al heard this, he was furious raging against his lackeys at the utter cruelty of the police. Using the pseudonym Al Brown, he took the stand to testify about the shooting. Al claimed that Frank was a law-abiding citizen who did not own a gun. The shooting was eventually ruled a justifiable homicide, 
and none of the officers were charged with a crime. It took all of Torrio's persuasive power to stop Capone from exacting bloody revenge on all the policemen responsible. But Capone's fury concealed a slightly deeper feeling, grief. If there was anything a callous murderer like Capone cared about, it was his family. If someone as smart and careful as Frank could be gunned down so suddenly, it meant that anyone was vulnerable no matter how many precautions he took. The only way to ensure the safety of his family was to have absolute power, power that would be within his grasp in only a year. Dean O'Banion, leader of the Northside Gang, was becoming a problem for the Chicago outfit. In May of 1924, a month after Capone's election victory cost him his brother, O'Banion approached Torrio about the Sieben Brewery, which they co-owned. O'Banion told Torrio that he wanted out of the liquor game and offered to sell Torrio his stake in the brewery. Not seeing any downside to this, Torrio accepted. As O'Banion's last shipment was being loaded out, policemen and prohibition agents stormed the brewery, arresting O'Banion, Torrio, and several of their henchmen. O'Banion was able to get off with a slap on the wrist, since he had no prior prohibition-related arrests. Torrio, on the other hand, had to bail himself and his men out. He had lost up to $500,000 and the brewery. When O'Banion refused to pay him back, Torrio realized that he had been played. O'Banion had set up the raid, or at least leveraged his prior knowledge of it. Humiliated and furious, Torrio told Capone to handle O'Banion while he left town to avoid the heat. Capone reached out once again to his old boss, Frankie Yale. Dean O'Banion spent much of his time at Schofield's Flower Shop, which served as a headquarters for the Northside Gang. In the guise of wanting an arrangement for a funeral, Frankie Yale paid multiple visits to this shop and chatted with O'Banion about the arrangements. As they talked, Frankie casually memorized the layout of the shop. Yale's final visit was on the morning of November 10, 1924. He entered the shop with two Jenna associates, John Scalise and Albert Anselmi. O'Banion emerged from the back room and welcomed them. Yale extended his hand in greeting. When O'Banion shook hands with him, Yale clamped down on his fist and refused to let go. Anselmi and Scalise flanked O'Banion and each fired four shots into him as Yale held him in place. O'Banion collapsed face down on the floor and received a final bullet in the back of his head. O'Banion's death kicked off an infamous period of violence in Chicago history. The Northside Gang was now led by Jaime Weiss and Bugs Moran, both of whom were furious that their mentor had been slain so offhandedly. They needed payback. Torrio was hiding out in Hot Springs, Arkansas, far from the Northside Gang's reach, but Capone was still in town, a ripe target for retribution. On January 12, 1925, Al Capone was entering a restaurant for lunch when a line of cars pulled up alongside the building and opened fire. Al threw himself into the restaurant as bullets riddled his car and the building beside it. 
The sound of the machine guns was as deafening as it was shocking. This was the first recorded use of the Thompson submachine gun in Chicago. This weapon would later define gang warfare in the 1920s. Moments after the volley began, the cars pulled away, leaving debris and Al's destroyed car in its wake. Capone, miraculously, was unscathed. Torrio was not so lucky. Believing that this dramatic show of force was the only attempt the Northside gang would make for revenge, he returned to Chicago later that month. Twelve days after the attempt on Capone's life, on January 24th, Torrio was returning home from a shopping trip with his wife, Anna. His driver pulled up to his home, and the two Torrios picked up their groceries and began to head inside. Suddenly, a sedan roared down the street in their direction. Two men stepped out of it and made their way toward the parked car. Torrio recognized them instantly, Jaime Weiss and Bugs Moran. The two men produced shotguns and pistols from their coats and charged. They emptied their weapons at Torrio as they approached. The gunfire shattered the glass of his car, filling its steel casing with holes. Torrio was hit in several places, including the jaw, lungs, and abdomen. He collapsed on the ground, bleeding heavily. He looked up to see Bugs Moran staring down at him, pistol raised. The gun didn't fire. Either Moran had used up all his ammunition in the initial volley, or his 45 had jammed. The frustrated gangsters began pummeling the prone Torrio, kicking and hitting him with clubs. At a signal from their driver, Moran and Weiss ran back to their vehicle. The sedan pulled away down the street, leaving Torrio for dead. But Torrio was rushed to the hospital and miraculously survived. He spent a month recovering in intensive care. Once again, Capone was called to testify for the shooting of a man close to him. Capone denied knowing any of the gangland suspects in the shooting, staying true to the unspoken code of silence among gangsters. Capone's entire testimony was provably false, with the exception of the final exchange, when the interviewer asked him, would you tell us if you did know who shot Torrio? Capone replied, no, I value my life too much to tell you if I know. Around the clock, guards stood outside Torrio's hospital room. Capone himself lay in a cot beside Torrio's hospital bed every night, essentially shielding his boss with his own body. Even hospital staff were wary of entering the room. Once Torrio recovered, he was taken to court for the Sieben Brewery incident and sentenced to nine months in prison. Through bribery, he ensured it was a comfortable stay. After a few short months of running the Chicago outfit, Capone received word from the prison. At the age of 43, Johnny Torrio was retiring. The entire multi-million dollar enterprise was Capone's alone. Now all he had to do was protect his business and his family from those who wanted to put him behind bars. While he plotted revenge on Bugs Moran and Jaime Weiss, his profile grew. Capone relished the spotlight, absorbing positive and negative press with the glee of a movie star. But it was this publicity that would ultimately prove his undoing. 
Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. Next week, the Chicago outfit finally gains the interest of the FBI, and Al Capone becomes public enemy number one. You can find more episodes of Kingpins, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify and anywhere you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler with sound design by Carrie Murphy. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Kingpins was written by Robert Teamstra and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett.